I want to start off with a question tonight. I want you to think about this. How do you feel with what Jesus said, how we should respond to our enemies? This is what he said. I'll throw it up on the screen here. This is Jesus speaking. It's in Luke chapter 6. He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. That's tough, isn't it? It's a great words. And then later, when Jesus is literally hanging on the cross, people that have, have killed him are killing him. This is what he prays. This is in Luke chapter 23. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And, and as I hear that, as I look at those words, I think, man, I love that. Like, there's something deep inside of my soul that that resonates very deeply with, you know? Like, I love the, the grace, the, the forgiveness, the mercy, because I know I need that in my own life, right? Okay, think about that. How do you reconcile Jesus' words with what it says here, these prayers in the book of Psalms? I'm just going to read some of these to you. Just listen. This is in Psalm 5, verses 8 through 10. The psalmist says, Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. The wicked, the evil. Not a word from, your, from their mouth can be trusted. Their hearts filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they tell lies. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for, all, for their many sins, for they've rebelled against you. Psalm 69, verse 22. May the table set before them, again, the enemies, the unrighteous. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents, for they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Wow. How about this one? Psalm 58. This is the one we're going to look at tonight. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the bow, let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Psalm 10, 15. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that they would not otherwise be, that would not otherwise be found out. Last one. This is Psalm 40. Those who surround me proudly rear their heads. May the mischief of their lips engulf them. May burning coals fall on them. May they be thrown into the fire, into miry pits never to rise. May slanderers not be established in the land. May disaster hunt down the violent. Wow, those are, those are strong words, aren't they? How do you, how do you reconcile... Jesus' words, pray for your enemies, right? Like when they curse you, bless them. How do you reconcile what Jesus says with these words? Where the psalmist is literally praying curses upon these people, upon their enemies. How about this? Another question. How do you feel about what happened in Orlando this past week? 
right? You, you probably read about it. It's all over the news. Guy apparently with apparently with ties to to ISIS goes into a gay Orlando nightclub and he just opens fire brutally massacring 49 people, injuring lots of other people. Like how do you how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean clearly this guy disagreed with the LGBT lifestyle, right? Which which by the way as as Bible believing Christians, we would disagree with that too. And yet almost every Christian on the planet would look at this and go, "Why why would you do something like this?" Like, what kind of person do you have to be to do something like this? And like, overwhelmingly heartbroken and disgusted at what this man did. Like, how should we respond to people who do those kind of things? What should we be praying about that? Like, what should our prayers even look like with that? Or, or how about this? I don't know if you remember this. This was 10 years ago, back in 2006. Dairy truck driver walks into a one-room Amish schoolhouse. Remember this? It's all over the news. And he sends out the teachers, the adults, and the boys. And he lines up these little Amish girls. And he shoots each one of them. Killed five of them. Severely wounded the other ones. Like, what... What kind of person would do those kind of things? Wouldn't those people who had to live through that, the Amish people that had to live through that, wouldn't they be justified in praying for God's wrath upon this guy and his family? Like, wouldn't they be justified in that? Or, or even more than actually showing God's wrath to them? What should we be feeling? What should we be praying what should we be doing as Christians living in a world that, let's be honest, is filled with lots of evil, right? I love our world. I love so many things about it, but let's be honest. Our world is filled with lots of evil, all kinds of evil and godlessness and sin, filled with things that absolutely break God's heart and filled with things that break our heart. What should our prayers look like? Should they look like the prayers of David and the other psalmists that are saying, that are praying curses upon their enemies, upon the evil, the wicked? Don't let them receive salvation, God. Or should our prayers look more like Jesus? Pray for my enemies. Bless those who curse me. Or something in between. And then, what should our actions look like? Like, what should we be doing? How should we be responding in a world that this is commonplace? Like what happened in Orlando this past week? It could happen anywhere. And it seems like these sort of things happen every week. Well, tonight we're going to look at a group of psalms that are actually some of the most difficult passages in the Bible to, to kind of interpret. Like, what, what, as Christians, what do, we, what do we do with these things? They're called the imprecatory psalms. And so, last week we started a series that we're going to do throughout the summer on the book of Psalms. And we said, man, this is a good, it's fun to like be in a particular book in the Bible. Sometimes we do series that, you know, are, are on various topics, you know, like marriage or 
uh, or, or uh, sadness, you know, uh, loss, pain, suffering, that sort of thing. But then other times we do series like this where we kind of dig into a book in the Bible and we said, this is a cool time for us as a body, as a family, to be able to dig into it to better t- together. And so I encouraged you last week, like, we should read the book of Psalms together. I want to say that again tonight. Like, I really want to encourage you. You know, if you read an average of three-ish Psalms a, a day, which literally takes five minutes. I mean, it doesn't take very long at all. But if you do that, then you'll get through the book of Psalms during the series. And I really want to challenge you to do this. And so we started this series last week. And tonight we want to talk about the imprecatory Psalms. And I want to say this too. Like, so, I, so in preparing for tonight, I pulled a lot of different things from a lot of different people. But probably the one that I've, I've most significantly kind of read into this week is a pastor theologian named John Piper. Maybe some of you guys have read some of his books, some of the things that he's written. But he's written some stuff on the imprecatory Psalms. And it's so good. And so I'd say a lot of what I'm sharing, going to share with you tonight is heavily influenced by what he said. So this word imprecatory, this is a word that like we don't really use too much today, right? Except for the most refined among us. When I want to sound smart, I, I talk in an English accent. It just sounds smarter to me. But we don't use this word very often today. But the word imprecatory is actually a very easy word. All it means is to pray evil against. This is what it means. To pray evil against or to invoke a curse upon. That's what it is. So these are psalms that are invoking, so these are imprecatory psalms that are invoking a curse upon somebody else. I don't know if you saw this story or not. Um, flip that up there. This was uh, John Case actually forwarded this to me. LeBron James invoked imprecatory psalms against Stephen Curry and the Warriors in the post-game interview after game four. This is, I'll, I'll read you the article. This is what it says. It's so cool. Reeling from the Cavs 108-97 loss in game four of the NBA Finals, LeBron closed his eyes and began vocalizing various imprecatory psalms Friday night during the post-game interview, appealing to God directly into the microphone, asking Asking that he utterly destroy the Golden State Warriors and their leader, Stephen Curry. This is not real, by the way. Not generally known as a man of outspoken faith, James was unabashed as he quoted several war psalms he had reportedly memorized for such a desperate occasion, imploring God to have no mercy on the reigning champions and their two-time MVP, Curry, who dominated with his 38-point performance. When a reporter asked for an explanation, the Cavs superstar noted how well the whole Bible thing seems to be working for Stephen Curry. 32 teams have gone down three to one in the finals. None have ever come back to win, he explained. Smite the Golden State Warriors in your fierce anger, Lord. Asked about his dust-up with Draymond Green during the game, during which Green seemingly uh, intentionally struck him in the groin, James spoke Psalm 58.6 into the mic, asking God to break the teeth in his mouth before shifting over to Psalm 69, naming Stephen Curry, praying, let his eyes be darkened so that he cannot see and make his loins tremble continuously. LeBron wrapped up the press time by noting to reporters that the book of Jeremiah mentions his enemies by name, quoting chapter 50, verse 36, invoking a sword against the warriors that they may be destroyed. Go Cavs, right? Babylon B is a little satirical thing. But they did win games five and six, right? (laughs) Game seven is going to be great. Anyway... 
Uh, back to seriousness here. It's interesting that these imprecatory psalms, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're all psalms that were, are in the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and they're about people praying for God's merciless judgment on their enemies, and yet the New Testament writers and Jesus himself are never ashamed of these psalms and never embarrassed of these psalms. In fact, some of them are quoted in the New Testament. Psalm 69 alone, which is an imprecatory psalm, is either quoted by a New Testament writer or fulfilled, parts of it fulfilled in things that Jesus did at least five different times in the New Testament. Like it's referred to at least five different times. And so the New Testament writers and Jesus, they don't look at these psalms in sort of like an ashamed way, right? Like an embarrassed way. Well, we don't function that way anymore. And one of the things that we said last week that I think is worth repeating tonight is that these psalms are people's prayers to God. I mean, that's, that's what the psalms are. They're people's prayers to God. And we said, so when we look at these, there's like this rawness to them. There's this rawness and honesty and transparency in these prayers. Many of them, like the imprecatory psalms, are just people like genuinely crying out to God in their struggle and in their despair. So keep that in mind as we dig into this psalm tonight. So I want to look at one of them together. So if you got a Bible, flip it open to Psalm chapter 58. Psalms chapter 58. Church Bibles, it's page 460. If you don't have a Bible of your own, by the way, if you don't have one with you, raise your hand. Doug back there will get you a Bible. He'll bring one over to you. If you don't have one of your own at home, period, uh, keep that. We'd love for you to have that. It's a gift to you. Um, But in Psalm 58, so this is an imprecatory psalm of David. And so the general context here is actually very important. We don't know specifically what's going on. So the book of Psalms is not a historical book, you know, where we can kind of pick right up in the middle of someone's life, kind of the history of someone's life. So we don't know specifically what's going on in David's life that he would be so desperate as to cry out and write what he writes here, which we'll look at here in a second. But we know what's happening generally. So if you go back and you read about David's life, King David in 1st and 2nd Samuel, and what the nation of Israel, which is where he lived, what the nation of Israel was like and what was happening in that part of the world at the time, you see a world that's very different than ours. So when this is written, David is writing in a world that's very, very different than the world that we're in right now. We have to keep that in mind. So Psalm 58 is about the corruption of leaders, these corrupt, evil leaders that David is dealing with. So David's the king, right? He's like the head honcho, okay? But he's got these guys, apparently, again, we don't know all the specifics, but he's got these guys, these leaders in his kingdom that are corrupt and that are evil. See, in David's world, you see leaders, the leaders of that country have like almost absolute power and freedom, right? So they could do whatever they wanted, basically, with very little consequence. And they, all, and they had, many of them were extremely wealthy and extremely prideful, extremely powerful and extremely self So when we get to the New Testament, this is probably good to know, when we get to the New Testament, the New Testament time, Israel was ruled over by another country. They were ruled by Rome during that time. But back here, when David is writing this, they're free. They're a free country, okay? And so you have these leaders that were very, very powerful, and you see lots of evil and corruption and godlessness all around. And you see these terrible
terrible injustices, especially among the poor and the oppressed. You know, there's lots of poverty. And you see these pagan nations, so beyond Israel, kind of the culture of that time, you have Israel and then you have all of these pagan nations around them and they were doing awful things. Like this is the world that they lived in. They were doing awful things like sacrificing their children to these false gods, like worshiping demons, like uh, very open sexual perversion. You know, you can go to the temple and, and just rent a prostitute anytime. It was very accepted, right? Like this is the world that he lived in. And you see wars where people are being uh, completely exterminated. Men, women, children, animals, everybody just utterly destroyed. You know, no mercy. No, no, it's not war like we do war today. You know, no just war. This is merciless slaughtering, right? So this psalm that David writes, 58, you know, with, is, is him, the king of Israel, crying out to God to bring his wrath, you know, and his justice on these dirty, corrupt leaders, okay? And this is what it says. Let's check it out. Psalm 58. We'll just read the whole thing. It's 11 verses. This is David talking to God. Do you rulers indeed speak justly? So he's talking about the rulers first. Do you judge people with equity? No. In your heart you devise injustice, and your hands meet out violence on the earth. Even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they're wayward, spreading lies. Their venom is like the venom of a snake, like that of a cobra that has stopped up ears, that will not heed the tune of the charmer, however skillfully the enchanter may be. And he prays this. We just read this. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. May they draw the bow. Let their, when they draw the bow, let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Verse 9, before your pots can feel the heat of the thorns, whether green or dry, which is, is, they would use thorns back then, probably good to explain this, they used thorns back then as like we would use kindling. So if you're trying to start a fire, you take little kind of dry pieces of wood or newspaper, right, to start the fire. That's what they use thorns for. So it says, before your pots can feel the heat of the thorns, whether they be green or dry, the wicked will be swept away. They'll be swept away quickly, is his point. Verse 10, the righteous will be glad when they're avenged and when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked. That sounds disgusting, right? But that's an allusion to war. So when, you're, when you win a war and you're on the battlefield and you walk across and your enemies have all been wiped out, you walk across and their blood gets on your feet. That's what he's talking about there. So the right, verse 10, the righteous will be glad when they're avenged, when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked. Then people will say, surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there's a God who judges the earth. So those are really strong words, right? I mean, this, this is stuff that's right in the Bible. What's David praying here? I mean, David's, David's cursing his enemies, right? He's really cursing the enemies of God. What's he saying here? Well, it's pretty simple to understand. God, these leaders are corrupt. They're unjust. When they make decisions, when they make judgments, they do it with injustice instead of justice. They're wicked, God. They're violent. They're wayward. They're liars. They're defiant. They're like a poisonous snake that's got his ears stopped up, that won't listen to the charmer. They won't listen to me, God, right? And he's like, God, get rid of them. Destroy them and do it quickly. Bring justice, God. Bring justice on the wicked, the evil people that won't change. They won't change, God. They won't repent. They're bent on evil. 
bring justice, and then the righteous, which you remember last week, we talked about the difference between the righteous and the wicked, and we said everybody's in one of two categories. Depending on what we do with God, we're either among the righteous or we're among the wicked. And we said then the righteous, you know, all those that love and follow God will be avenged, God, finally be at peace. God will punish the wicked and he'll reward the righteous who love them. That's essentially what he's saying here. And so you see David's heart really clearly here. You know, David's not praying. He's not praying to God saying, kill my enemies because my enemies are being evil to me. That's actually not at all what David's saying here. He absolutely loves God and he hates it when people do evil things that are against God. They're against God's heart. They're against God's ways because they make a holy and righteous God look bad. Why is David so angry at these guys? Well, they're hurting people. They're doing evil things and hurting people and they're making God look bad, right? Like, God, deal with this. Bring justice. Finally, it reviles him. What these people are doing reviles him. It disgusts him. It's actually, it's actually a very selfless prayer of David. You know, if I'm honest... Sometimes I look at, you know, the injustices of our world, and I, and I feel, I think the exact same things as David prays here. Like if, if I'm honest, you know, it, it disgusts me. You know, you think about what happened in Orlando. You think about, you know, we hear about all these things that ISIS is doing. My kids pray every night, God, I pray for the people that ISIS is killing. I don't know, we, we prayed that a few times, and now they pray it every night. You see these terrible things, and it, like, it disgusts me, it frustrates me, it angers me. You know, I don't understand how someone can plan out and plot to go into a school and just open fire on people. Like, how many of these school shootings have we seen in the last 10 years? I don't understand how somebody can plan out and plot to go to a marathon and create these dirty bombs that are going to explode and kill and mutilate people. I don't understand that. I don't understand how someone can go into a plan and plot out going into a gay nightclub with weapons and just shooting everybody that they see. I don't understand that. It makes me furious. It makes me so angry, so disturbed, and then so heartbroken for the people that have to live through that or suffer through that, affected by the evil. But then, again, if I'm honest, if I'm just being honest, in my deep disgust for these terrible atrocities, I very quickly forget. And I open up Facebook, or I get in my nice, comfortable car, and I turn on my radio, and I listen to pleasant sounds, right, songs, or I come home to my nice, comfortable home, and I turn my TV on, and I watch some pointless sitcom, and I just move on, you know? I go back to my, my comfortable world until I'm sufficiently distracted from the latest atrocity. If I'm honest, how many times that was I do? Anybody else feel that? Yeah. See, one of the most, this is so important. Like when you think about, I think this is the biggest point here as we look at these imprecatory psalms. One of the most important things that these psalms do for us, ready? Is that they remind us of the evil in the world. They remind us of the evil. They remind us of what evil is and they remind us of what wickedness looks like and how appalled we should be by it. 
because we can very quickly, very quickly be numbed to it. You know, like you see all the stuff going around, you're like, yeah, another shooting. I actually thought that when I first saw the headline on CNN, uh, eh, another shooting, another ISIS thing, killing people, hurting people. We could be numb to it, and then we can miss how utterly evil evil is. Or we can very quickly forget about it. Or even worse, just move on and ignore it. It doesn't fit into our comfortable world. And so I reject it. It's not a pleasant thought for me to think about. And I don't let myself feel it. I ignore it. A, a guy that I was reading a little bit this week, a guy named David Thompson, he's writing about the imprecatory psalms, and he says it so well. This is what he says. We'll throw it up on the screen. He says, these prayers awaken the conscience to the human cry for redress. The cosmic demand for moral order and justice. They can lead one to feel as deeply as one ought the horrendous insult to Yahweh, to God and his creation, perpetuated by those who lie and cheat and kill and abuse and blaspheme. Made callous by exposure to continual evil, one may lose the sense of outrage that these evils deserve, whether done to us or done to others or to God. And listen to this, he says, these prayers awaken that outrage, which is to be offered to God and which motivates to redemptive action. See, we don't want to think about or, or, or wrestle with the evil in our world very long. You know, if it's not happening to us, right? We, we, you know, we don't want to think about it. We don't want to wrestle with it. We don't want to feel it. Instead, we want to forget it. But what these psalms do for us they awaken that outrage. They make us feel these things. They make us feel what evil is. God doesn't call us as, a, as his followers to ignore and forget about evil. This is so important, guys. God doesn't call us as his followers to just ignore and forget about evil. He calls us to hate it and to do something about it. This is what God calls us to as his followers. Not just ignore it, forget about it. But to hate it, to be disgusted by it, and then do something to it. Do something about it. Which begs the question, like what? What, what are we supposed to do about it? Like what, what am I supposed to do about all of the evil in this world? What does Psalm 58 specifically and the imprecatory psalms in general move us to do? Well, our world is very different from David's world, right? Especially our country. We have a different kind of government. We're, we have a different sort of civility. We have checks and balances. But we got a lot of terrible, evil things in our world too. It's all around us. It's going on all around us. Sinful things. And our job isn't to sit idly by and ignore what's happening. It's not to just get comfortable. It's not to, to shut our ears to the pain and think, I don't want to think about that. What can we do? What can we learn from these imprecatory psalms that we can walk out of here and do something with in our lives? We don't live in the world that David lived in, but we live in a world that's got lots of terrible things happening, and we have an internet that we can see all of these things almost instantly. So what are we supposed to do? Well, I want to give us some real practical things. This is why I want to just kind of finish our time. I want to give us some real practical things for us, for you to consider and you to chew on this week, okay? How are we supposed to respond to all of the evilness in our world? Here's the first thing. Feel it. Feel it. Like, feel the injustice. 
Don't ignore it. Don't numb yourself to it. Feel these people's pain and suffering. Allow yourself, when you see evil, allow yourself to be appalled by evil. Sometimes without even realizing it, we can be tempted to minimize it, to to even justify it, or make it seem like it's not as bad as it really is. Guys, listen, sometimes it's as bad as it sounds. When you see terrible things happening, we we can be tempted to go, and it's not that bad. Or, or, or they have their own reasons for doing these things. Listen, sometimes it's as bad as it sounds. Evil and wickedness is real, and it's not judgmental for us to call it evil. It's not judgmental. In fact, it's a, it's a disgrace to God. It's like a slap in the face to our holy God if we don't call evil, evil. Can, can I be real clear here? What happened in Orlando is evil. It's evil. It was motivated by an evil ideology and it was carried out by a wicked person who killed himself and is now suffering in hell. It's, it's evil, right? And we gotta feel that. And we have to be able to call what's evil, evil. We don't just you know, pretend like it's not that bad or close our mind to it. We feel it and we understand how utterly evil, evil is. We don't distract ourselves, we don't ignore it, we don't get numb to it. We feel it, that's so important. And when we feel it, that leads to some actions. That leads to some response in our lives. First thing is we seek to live our lives with personal holiness. Like when I, when I feel the evil, the next, my first response is, I don't wanna be that way. I, I, don't, I don't wanna be part of the problem. I wanna be part of the solution. I, I, I wanna be like Jesus. How do we be like Jesus? We spend time with him. We talk to him. We listen to him. We read about him. And we ask him and allow him to change our hearts. How do I pursue holiness in my life? Try harder? No. Ask Jesus for his help. Ask Jesus to change us. If you want to be a Christian, you need to be a person who hates evil and who strives for holiness to be like Jesus in your life. God, I see evil in our world and it breaks my heart and it disgusts me. God, I need your help to be nothing like that. I don't want to be like that. And I know I'm tempted to do evil things. Are you? You are, because we're human. God, I need your help to not be that way. I commit to you, God, that I will strive to be like Jesus. It's the first thing. When we feel it, I think the first response for me at least is we, it moves us to pursue holiness in our lives. That's the first thing. Second thing, this feeling of you know, feeling injustice and wickedness and even our world should do for us is it should cause us to go out of our way to show extreme kindness and compassion to those that are the recipients of injustice. To go out of our way, not just when it's convenient for us, but to go out of our way to show kindness and compassion to the people that are the recipients of those injustices, of the oppressed, even if, even when, we disagree with some of their beliefs, even when we disagree with some of their ideologies. Like very simply, Jesus calls us to love, right? I mean, it's so simple. This is what he calls us to do. Look at uh, John 13. This is Jesus talking. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. 
There's, there's no caveat there. There's no, there's no only ifs, you know. I'll love you only if you. There's none of that. It's, it, it's just love people the way that he loved us. How did he love us? He loved us when we were sinners. That's what Romans 5, 8 says. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like our job, even when we disagree with people and their lifestyle, their decisions, our job is to love them. I don't know if you saw this in the news this past week about how in Orlando after this massacre, hundreds of people were lining up. I, 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 I don't think I misheard it. One line was over a mile long. It stretched like blocks of people that were waiting to give blood to help you know, in the, the people that were in this massacre. And Chick-fil-A, you know, a company that is pretty unashamedly, it's got pretty unashamedly Christian owners, you know, and they have Christian values that they base their business on, closed on Sundays so that their employees can go to church and they can be with their families. Chick-fil-A went out and they served sandwiches on the day that, you know, they're always closed. I've driven by Chick-fil-A many times on Sunday, so excited to go, and I forget that they're closed on Sunday. They're closed. But they go out and they made sandwiches. They gave sandwiches to all these people that were waiting in line to give blood for the, you know, this gay nightclub shooting. And what's so cool about this is this is the same Chick-fil-A you know, who was drugged through the mud over the media and boycotted because it didn't support LGBT you know, values and they didn't say that you know, it, that's okay, they disagree with that lifestyle. I love that. Like this is a perfect example that we don't have to agree with everything everyone believes in order to show them love and compassion and kindness. Rick Warren, who uh, is a pastor in uh, L.A. area, Saddleback Church, said something I think it's so insightful. I've, I've seen this on the internet lots of different times. I've seen it attributed to Phil Robertson, Dave Chappelle, <laughs> lots, of, lots of people. It was actually Rick Warren who said it so insightful. He said, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. Guys, this is, this is what Jesus calls us to do as his followers. Love people. Show, show kindness to people. Show compassion to people that are hurting. Just love them. Third thing, as, as a follower of Jesus, when I, when I feel the evils of injustice, when I actually allow myself to feel it, I've got to be moved to pray for heart change for the wicked that I believe with all my heart can only come through Jesus. Like when I feel it, I gotta show, I gotta work on myself, right? I don't wanna be part of the problem. I wanna show kindness and compassion and love. Then I gotta be moved to pray that God would bring about heart change in these people that I believe can only come through Jesus Christ. I think this is exactly what Jesus meant when he said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those that mistreat you. I think this is exactly what Jesus meant when he said that. You know, that, that, that man I was telling you about that went into the Amish schoolhouse and, and killed those girls. His name is Charles Roberts. After he killed them, he killed himself too. And I was reading a little bit about what happened right after that. And literally that same afternoon, the Amish community, some in the Amish community, began to reach out to his family. 
I, I read about one little girl that died. Her grandpa, that same day, reached out to, to this guy's family and began surrounding them with love and compassion and prayer. The same day. That blows my mind. That blows my mind. Right smack in the middle of the rawness of their pain, of all that they were feeling, I can't even imagine, they go out to help this man's family encounter the love and grace of Jesus Christ because that's what changes people. I think about that. I think that, that is incredible. See, it's painful to look at the terrible things that groups like ISIS are doing all over the world and even think to pray for them, to pray a compassionate prayer for them, to come to Jesus and receive heart change. Like that's so, that, that's like almost unthinkable for us when we actually feel the pain of what they've done. And yet, guys, this is exactly what Jesus calls us to do. It's hard, but being a Christian is hard. You know, you go back in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, you read about a guy named Stephen. Stephen was a godly man who was being falsely accused, and he's on trial for being a Christian. And he stands up in front of the people that are looking to put him on trial and kill, them, kill him. And he tells them all about Jesus. And as they're literally dragging him out, stoning him, this is what he prays. He says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Like, literally, they're killing him unjustly. And he prays, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. More than anything, what he wanted is for these people to turn, to repent, to turn and follow Jesus. And guys, we should be too. You know, as we, as we feel the pain and, and evils of injustice and wickedness, it should remind us of our own evils and injustice and wickedness and move us to pray for people to experience grace and forgiveness the way that we've had a chance to experience grace and forgiveness. That's, that's what life, when life change happens. We can make little changes, but to take somebody going from evil to being a good, righteous person, it takes a heart change through Jesus. It's hard to pray those prayers when we feel the pain of, and wickedness of what some people are doing, but that's what God calls us to. So, so then, what about these imprecatory psalms? You know, are they bad? Or are they examples of what not to pray? Well, let me say this. I think, I think these are more about people being honest with God. These, these imprecatory psalms are more about people being honest with God while living through some serious pain, living through some serious suffering, you know, of, of evil people's oppression of them. I think it's more honest prayers to God rather than prayers that are prescriptions for us living in the 21st century United States. I really think that. I think it's more like these are people crying out to God in their turmoil than it is this is how you and I should pray when we, when we see evil in the world. Now, that being said, I think it's very appropriate to pray a prayer like this. God, I pray that you change people. I see the evil going on. I pray that you would change it. I pray you change their hearts and they would come to experience grace and they would stop doing these terrible evil things. But if they don't, but if they don't, I pray, God, that you would bring justice. I pray that you would punish them for the evil that they've done. I pray that you would stop them by any means possible. I think that's a valid prayer for us, guys. I think when we take what Jesus said about loving our enemies, praying for those that curse us, 
and we see the need for justice and evil to be paid for, right? I think the appropriate response is we pray God change their hearts, bring salvation, but if they resist, if they don't, bring justice. Do something, God. I think that's an appropriate prayer for us. Last thing, I know I need to wrap up. As we actually feel this, as we actually feel the pain and wickedness you know, of evil, we allow ourselves to be appalled by it. Sometimes the appropriate response for us is to stand up and fight for the weak, for the powerless, and for the oppressed. Sometimes the appropriate response for us is to do more than seek personal holiness in our life. It's good. It's to do more than just be kind and compassionate to people. It's good. It's to do more than praying that God would change people's hearts. Sometimes the appropriate response for us is to stand up and fight for people that can't fight for themselves. And guys, listen, I don't mean vigilante justice. I, I don't mean, you know, me meeting out judgment and punishment on people that, that, that I choose as appropriate, like I'm some sort of Marvel superhero or something like that, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I mean going into the streets and doing everything short of breaking the law to help these young women who are being trafficked for sexual purposes like Rahab Ministries is doing. I, I mean going to pregnancy centers like, like Pregnancy Solution Services or Community Pregnancy Center in Barberton to love on and teach these expecting mothers and to help save the lives of their unborn children. I mean like stepping out to help students in our schools whose, whose dad's in prison and whose mom is on drugs and stepping in and, and taking the initiative to fight for these kids, to fight for their future, to love on them and teach them and care for them. See, sometimes God calls us to do more than pray. Sometimes God calls us to do more than, than seek to live a good life and not be part of the problem, to ask him to change us. Sometimes God calls us to do more than just be kind and compassionate. Sometimes he calls us to go out and fight for people that can't fight for themselves. And so I know I need to end. I want to say this. I want to challenge you. Like, in your life, what does this look like? You know? Like, what, how is God calling you to respond? We can look at what happened in, you know, in Egypt, in that part of the world, in Orlando, whatever, a thousand miles away from us, and we can go, eh, there's not, I can pray, there's maybe not a whole lot else I could do. But guys, there's evil and injustice all around us. There, there are terrible things happening in the city of Barberton right now. I'm sure of it. Or wherever it is that you live. Like, what's your part? What are your prayers going to look like? What are your actions going to look like? Are you talking to God about it? Are you asking him what your part is in all of this? I, I think it's appropriate to maybe end on something that Paul wrote. I think it sums up really well kind of all of, all of these imprecatory psalms and maybe our response. It's in Romans chapter 12. I'll end this way. That's what Paul writes. He says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good.